Heavenly Father, again we come to you and say, say your praises, Lord. And the messages that we heard this morning and people that were there worshiping, worshiping you and loving you, just brings joy to your heart. So Lord, thank you very much for allowing us to do this. Living in a country like we live in and going through even difficult times. We just pray that some of these difficulties would be taken care of, Lord, and in your way, not our way. So, Lord, just help us to get through these times. And we know, Lord, that you know what's going on with our government and the world conditions that are horrible out there in some of these countries where they're being murdered and tortured. So, Lord, we know you know this, and you just wait, Lord, for your action. We know it will be coming. We've gone through history. We know what history tells us. And all the difficulties that our ancestors faced through these different times and problems they faced. So, Lord, just thank you for your love and kindness and for the words that we've heard today and your name. Amen. Yeah, it is a pretty messed up world. <laughs> yeah, and pardon? I'm so negative. Ah, it is messed up. I'm, I, uh, Jim is in our Friday night Bible study, and so we're uh, reading through uh, Revelation, studying through Revelation, and we're in uh, we've last couple weeks been in chapter 17 and 18 which, if you're familiar with Revelation at all, good to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. When you get to chapter 16, it gives the final judgment. And then you see the, the impact of that final judgment as it plays out at the very end of history. And, I mean, that it's really scary... When you read these kind of words, flip there, it says in uh, chapter 16, verse 17 of Revelation, it says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. When God says it is done, and he's finished, that's pretty scary. Um, and then what happens is you uh, read basically a, a eulogy, um, a eulogy over the kingdom of the world, and how uh, it likens it symbolically to Babylon, and uh, Babylon being an ancient Rome in the time that this was written. So those that would have uh, read this in the first century would have said, oh yeah, well it's talking about Rome, but it's it's figurative of a world um, kingdom that, you know, it goes a certain way. And, and this is what happens, and it ends badly. And, you know, I, I read the news, and I don't want to get negative and drill into negativity, but, man, you look at the world, and it's a pretty messed up place. I get so frustrated. Pardon? It's upset and frustrating yeah. So, so here we are. We find ourselves in the middle of a mess, and 
almost all of us would say would like to say, well, this isn't my mess. Why do I have to live through it and watch it be cleaned up if it gets cleaned up in our lifetime? Um, but in fact, the heart of man is what caused the mess. So we participated in it, which is scarier yet. It's like, oh, what's happening is a result of sin. And how, how now shall we live in light of the truth, the revelation of God that's been given to us? And that's where we're at in Hebrews, actually. Um, the gospel has been fully proclaimed, and it's now turning to, okay, how do you apply this in your life? How do you, um, how do you have this cause a change in the way that you live every day? When you wake up, uh, what are your first thoughts? What, what's your second thought? How do you live throughout the day? And that's really what the author of Hebrews is going to lay out next. And he started that in chapter 10 with what I call the, the let us uh, verses. So he says, let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession of our, uh, of our hope, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And then it, he goes on through a greater exposition. And we, we went through the warning passage, which... Uh, is one of the most stern warnings that I think you'll read anywhere about uh, sinning willfully and what what we can expect if we continue in a place of rebellion and uh, willful disobedience and sin. And that Andrew was talking this morning about how he came out of a life of rebellion and how he was determined that's what he was going to do for a number of years even though he watched it not working. You know, the evidence said, this doesn't work. And yet he continued down that path. I, I'm uh, paraphrasing because I stood in the same place, so I can uh, add some light to that. In fact, I wanted to uh, use my own example this morning to say, okay, what happens when you get to that point and you decide to repent and turn around? Because you're still all messed up and you still have a heart full of sin and a life full of sin. How do you... How now shall we live? And that's exactly what the author of Hebrews gives us. What do you suppose you would do if you were uh, had come to the point of repentance and, and true submission to God and you come before the cross of Christ um, and you uh, take his yoke upon you, which is what he says to do. You lay down your burden of sin and guilt and he takes that and does for you what you could not do for yourself what then do you do next and that's what the author of Hebrews wants to show us and he introduces it with this phrase in Hebrews chapter 10 um, verse 39 38, 39 I'm gonna, let me see where should I start uh, actually, I'll start in verse 32. But before we get there, I don't know. We'll start in verse 32, we'll read through 39, then I'd like to go to Psalm 27. That's how I'd like to approach it this morning. So we read in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, the encouragement that comes after the morning. It says, But remember the former days, when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. 
for you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For in yet a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So what he's, what he's characterizing here for us, um, what a life of endurance in the, to a life living in the will of God, a life lived of, of endurance looks like this. It looks like faith. We're not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. He says, my righteous one, this comes out of Habakkuk, um, shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So what we want to look at is we want to look at faith. And he now goes into chapter 11, a whole exposition on what faith is. In fact, it's the only place in all of the Bible where faith is actually defined. As we enter into that, let's look at what faith looked like in the Old Testament. Let's look, take a look at Psalm 27. <clears throat> While you're turning there, someone's going to read it out. I won't read it for you. Psalm 27. This is a Psalm of David. And uh, as we went through uh, Samuel, we talked about David and David's life and good, the bad, and the ugly, and we know that David was a man after God's heart, and part of the reason, or part of the explanation of what that means is in Psalm 27. So somebody want to read out Psalm 27? The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Through an army they encamped against me. My heart shall not fear, though war may arise against me. In this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide from his pavilion in the secret place of his tabernacle. He shall hide me, and he shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above the enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing yes. I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, 
and lead me in smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such a breath out of violence I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord and the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, and I will, and I say on the, on the Lord. Amen. So, as Dave read through that, what kind of things popped off the page for you? What kind of what? What kind of, what kind of images or thoughts occurred to you um, as you read through Psalm 27? Well, David is, you know, he's fear for his life, but he's turning it back over to the Lord. Right. He's not fearing, he's, physical, he's physical life may be fearing, but, but he has faith in the Lord. He's showing his faith in God. Yep. And, he's, and it isn't just the threat of uh, physical uh, harm that he's concerned about. Um, he understands that there's more at risk than just his physical well-being. And it's, it's true that God preserves us and protects us. He says, though a, a host encamp against me or an army encamp against me my heart will not fear the war rises against me in spite of this I shall be confident so there's certainly threat that's involved but one of the things that I would say is that he recognizes that there's a a better place to be um, that is more than just protection and provision it's actually a place of comfort and encouragement and growth and wholeness um the, I use the word shalom a lot to describe it. So shalom in the Old Testament, um, it, it's often translated peace. But it's more than just a cessation of hostility. It's actually a wholeness and a completeness according to God's design. It's the way God made things to be that is good. In fact, it's not just good, it's very good. And that that's what David wants. That's what his heart yearns for is that which is good and is very good. He wants the, the wholeness of God. He said, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I shall seek, that I may dwell in, the, dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. That's, that's the cry of his heart there, is that he would have a communion with God that is like that he is continually dwelling, living with him, right? And those of us that have had the, the privilege of dwelling with a, uh, a wife or a husband um, recognize the kind of intimacy that occurs in day-to-day life that is different than all of the other kind of relationships we have. And that's what he's talking about here. And to behold the beauty of the Lord. Or another way of saying that is to behold the delightfulness of the Lord. That it's a place of great comfort, encouragement, um, and awe. You know, when we think of the things that are beautiful in the world, um, and the things that strike us as beautiful, right? Those are things that cause our heart to delight. That cause our heart to just 
rejoice and shout out. And that's, in fact, what he says he'll do. He says um, that he'll offer uh, shouts of joy and sacrifices. So what you see David going through here is more than just uh, protect me, God, because people are trying to kill me, because that's always the case. It's actually deeper than that. In fact, you could probably um, take this out uh, a little bit further. In verse 11, it says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a level path. Because of my foes, uh, or those who lie in wait for me, do not deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and as such as it breathe out violence. Now, the, the natural way of thinking about that is that he's talking about his enemy, uh, which might be the Philistines, right? The Philistines are trying to kill David. It might be his enemy within, might be his very own son, right? So we know the story of David, and we know that there were certainly those that were opposed to David, that had nothing good to say about David, that desired his harm, and they spoke against him. But you could take this to the ultimate adversary, the, the enemy that accuses us night and day before the throne of God. And what he, uh, the snares that he sets for us are snares of, um, of sin, that we are tempted to enter into sin. So when he says, um, lead me in a level path because of my foes, because of the temptations that come against me, because of that which would cause me to sin, the desires my destruction, right, which is set by an enemy of our soul. He says, don't deliver me over to the desire of my adversaries. He's talking about protection, not just physically, he's talking about protection spiritually. He said, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So recognizing that there is an enemy so insidious that it causes us to enter into his snare. We fall into sin. First by deceit and then by a practice of the heart. Right? Um, what, what would you uh, look to, to to bring you out of that despair? out of that darkness. You would look for the hope that is in the promise of God. You would look for the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. You would look for Messiah. So in a sense, this is a messianic psalm. What he's talking about is that he's looking forward in hope to God actually entering into history, into the land of the living. The goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That's what causes him not to despair. It's what gives him hope, and that hope leads to something. It actually leads to a way of behavior for him. I say that because we see the same thing in chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is the definition of faith. It starts out with a definition of faith, um, and it then goes to how faith works. So it starts out with the definition of faith, with the ingredients of faith, 
in the first seven verses, and then it goes to how this works, uh, what its significance and implications. That's uh, an outline of how the author of Hebrews uh, approaches this section. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed the going out uh, to, a, to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead as at that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, and innumerable, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own, and indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, and worship, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. 
By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab, the harlot, did not perish along with those who were disobedient, after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourging, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Wow. You know, when you read through that, the, the argument and the evidence that he gives, so he's giving a whole lot of evidence, almost every one of these by faiths is some evidence of an assertion that he's already made. He starts out with his assertion. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old gained approval. Let's, uh, let's start with... with uh, let's start with talking about what faith is. Okay, there's a lot in this verse. Assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. Um... Let's let's identify what faith is not. What is not faith? Like positive thinking is not faith. Faith is not a work. It's not something that we um, will to do and and exercise our power to accomplish. It's not a work. It's not a positive thinking thing. Right, so there's there is a movement today, which calls they think they call it the Word of Faith movement, where um, people will um, basically think positively because we understand that there are blessings and cursings uh, described in the Bible. Those that are in communion with God can expect blessing, and those that are not in communion with God can expect cursing. That's a summary of Deuteronomy. Right? It's a bad summary. I think it's a defective theology because it focuses on blessing. And sure enough, God does bless. But sometimes his blessings are a mystery to us. We don't understand them as blessings because they don't fit a pattern of blessing in the world. Um, but nonetheless, there is a, uh, in communion with God, a blessing that we would understand as provision and protection and, and that ultimately he is the defender of our soul. When we um, appear before the judgment seat in the end 
and the accuser comes up and says, I know Dave. This is what this is who Dave is. And he tells the story of Dave and all of its all of its uh, lack of glory. Then Christ steps forward and says, Yeah. But he's mine. I died for him. Um, your accusation, although maybe true, has no effect as far as penalty because the penalty has been paid and Dave has been justified. So, faith um, is not positive thinking and me bringing something about. It's also not just hoping for the best or feeling optimistic. And many would kind of put faith in that category today. What, what faith is, is what we do in the presence of doubt and temptation. So uh, I wish Daniel was here because Daniel uh, has been asking a lot of questions, especially as we got into chapter 10 and the warning passage. He said, well, what does it mean to go on sinning willfully? Right? What happens if we sin willfully? Now, everybody here has probably asked themselves that question when they've sinned willfully. Right? That we continue on in some kind of, uh, uh, with full consciousness that we're outside of the will of God, we continue on in the will of ourselves. Um, and that that's sinning willfully. Right? Um, what faith is, is what you do in the presence of sin and in the presence of temptation. What you do in the presence of doubt. So, I always want to understand what is sin and what is, a, what is the, this propensity of sin that we have. And the easiest way for me to understand it is the way that I describe addiction for people. Sin is a kind of addiction. When you're born, you can think of yourself as a blank slate. This is level ground. Okay? Water comes down on level ground. What happens to the water? Does it just pile up on top of the level ground? It, at first, yes, but it finds the lowest point. And it starts to make that lower point lower. Right? And over time, it becomes a stream or a river. This is how your brain works. So you form pathways in your brain. So I'm going to give you a purely physiological explanation, and then I'm going to equate it to sin. The way that your brain works is that you make connections between uh, in, incoming data, input, and meaning what that means. And you're, you get very good at it. And what the way that that happens is by the forming of these indentations. They're pathways, channels in your brain. And what occurs is if you lose part of your brain for whatever reason, through stroke or injury or something like that, you can lose some of your ability to filter that input into meaning such that you can live successfully. Well, what addiction is, addiction is when you have a normal pathway in the brain, that's the way that things go through your, your processing to make sense, and through uh, a course of events 
you deepen that channel really fast, you make a canyon or a gorge. So the way I think about this is uh, back in the, the last uh, ice age, I think it was, no, it might have been before that, um, they uh, speculate that there was a, a lake called uh, Lake Missoula. It was held back by an ice dam that was about a mile high, and there was all this water that covered uh, a lot of Montana and Idaho behind this ice dam. And that there was a cataclysmic event that caused this ice dam to break. And all of that water, covering more than two states, came rushing down, uh, and it found the lowest spot. But when it hit that lowest spot, it quickly carved out a channel. In fact, it carved out uh, the Grand Coulee, right? It carved out, if you go to Grand Coulee today, there's a place outside of Coulee City called Dry Falls, which is evidence that there was a whole pot load of water that came over and caused these channels to form uh, in a very short period of time. So they figure in 24 to 48 hours, most of that water went from Montana-Idaho region to the Pacific Ocean. And in the course of moving through very quickly, it carved out the Columbia River Gorge, and it carved out the Grand Coulee, and it carved out the area of Dry Falls. And that they, you know, geologists look at this and they say, this is evidence of this cataclysmic event. That's what addiction is. Addiction is when, through a choice that somebody makes, in the normal pathways in the brain creates an artificial condition that super floods these pathways. And what that means is that when a drop of water hits anywhere here on this flat line, you don't know where it's going to go. When it hits here, you figure it's eventually going to make its way into the, the drainage basin. Here, certainly so. You now have a river. When it hits here, it just goes straight in every time, which is why people get caught in sin and repeat it. They get caught in addiction. Sin is like addiction. Um, and that once you form that path, that's the way that water will naturally go from that point forward to the point of great destruction. That's the way the brain works. It's also the way that sin works. God said, don't do that because it leads somewhere. It leads to death. And this is why when people get caught into repetitive sins, and we all do it, what we're doing is we're, we're falling directly into this channel, making it deeper and deeper and deeper. So when we read chapter 7 of Romans, Paul talks about, you know, he does what he doesn't want to do. And he doesn't do what he, what he knows he ought to do, what he wants to do. And he doesn't know how to get out of keeping falling into that channel. He's actually become a slave to sin. Sin owns him. Just like this river valley here, this uh, Columbia River Gorge, owns the water from a six-state region that falls into it. It owns the water. That's what happens with sin. In fact, Andrew shared today out of John chapter 8 about how we are a slave to sin. He starts out in uh, chapter 8 of John, verse 31, he says, So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my, uh, my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
key statement. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So they're questioning what this whole idea of slavery and freedom really means. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. As soon as you go there, it owns you. There is no way out. You have no other course of action, just like the way your brain works. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You were doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. It says, You are of your father the devil, and you do... Uh, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Wherever, Whenever he speaks a lie, uh, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you can, convicts me of sin? I speak the truth. Why do you not believe me? Okay. Got off course here. There's, there's a larger portion of what I want to say here. But what the whole issue of, of freedom and freedom from sin uh, and how sin owns you, you see in a couple of different places. So you see it in when Jesus was speaking to them, what he was speaking about is he was speaking about who owns you. That... Um, if you follow this path, you will be owned. You will be in sin. You'll be owned by the father of sin. There is only one way that you can be not in that trough. And that's to have a complete change of course. So what Jesus provides is not a filling in of the trough. Because what they've shown is that physiologically you can never make an addict not an addict. Right? If you know anything about addiction, an addict is always an addict. But what happens is, is that there's a new channel formed. It's a channel that's formed by faith, by following God. Um, the way that I came to understand this was, um, I used to smoke cigarettes. right? And I was uh, too poor to afford to go buy the kind that are pre-rolled. So I rolled my own cigarettes and uh, so I'd just buy loose tobacco and, and uh, roll my own cigarettes. Well, it got to the point where I couldn't even afford to buy loose tobacco. So I would do what they call snipe hunting. I'd go out and I'd find somebody else's butt, and I would pick up all the butts, and I would break them open, and, and then I'd roll my own from the butts. They call that snipe hunting. 
So you know you're pretty far down when you go snipe hunting. You smoke somebody else's butt to get off the ground. Our brother did that. Yeah. So that's that's where I was. And at the same time, I was struggling trying to figure out how can I get out of sin and and be free, truly free, and not be a slave to sin. And I, those of you that have ever smoked, you know that it owns you too. Right? It's addiction. So I'm sitting there working in my shop one day, and I got my butts out there and rolling papers, and a good friend of mine walked into the shop, and we were just talking about computers and other things, and, and he looked at that and he laughed. He said, yeah, I remember doing that. He said, you know, God can deliver you from that too. And then we went on and talked about something else. What he did is he told me the truth. God can deliver you from that too. And what happened was, is I didn't try to quit smoking. I just believed something that God told me that I knew was true. I believed a promise. And in believing a promise, all of a sudden I quit smoking. Because God could deliver me from that too. I realized that, oh, he actually can. That the physiological thing can be broken. Just like it was a broken, broken for me from drugs and alcohol and other things. Um, and that he would deliver me from that too. And I just quit smoking. That was, I think, in, it, was, it was a long time ago now. Um, it just happened. And it happened because I believed God, I believed something different, and I didn't fall into this camp because I went a completely different direction. You read the same thing, in Romans chapter 6, it says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that may, uh, grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That was Daniel's question. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. He can deliver you from that too. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. It's the same thing that he's saying in chapter 10 and 11. Christ died once for all. That... Um, the power of sin over you has been broken. 
You no longer have to fall into this channel. But God can deliver you from that too. That's what he's saying. And that the way that that occurs is by believing the promise of God. It's believing God that causes you not to be bound in sin. So we all sin. We all have habitual sins. They're all different. I would say that sin is like like addiction. And that the reason you do that is because somehow you form a channel in your life. And every time you get into that terrain, guess where you go? So what you need to do is you need to actually be different. God made you different. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he can deliver you from that too? That's what I was confronted with when it came to smoking. Can God really deliver you from that too? So whatever the sin is, can God deliver you from that? And what does that look like? It's the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. I still had the tobacco sitting there on the, the table with the rolly papers and uh, I had a date with a cigarette in 15 minutes. Right? That's where I was at. Um, but I all of a sudden heard something and knew that it was true. I believed it. And in believing that it was true, I recognized that I didn't have to have a date in 15 minutes. Why did I have to do that? God could deliver me from that too. Does that mean that it was without pain? No, because when that 15 minutes came up, guess what happened? Um, temptation happened. Pardon? Desire happened. And I had to basically trust God that he was good for his promise that I was not going to die, that the course of medicating myself through nicotine was not going to lead me to life, um, as nicotine promised me, right? What, what was the promise I got from nicotine? That it would allow me, like Andrew said uh, this morning, uh, alcohol would allow him to sleep at night. Nicotine uh, promised me that I would be alert and effective in the day. Did it ever do that for me? No. No. Never did. So why would I believe it? Now here's God who is the power of, um, as David said in, in Psalm 27, I'll quote David, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Right? That's the promise that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That, and I, and I, then I started looking, okay, what are all the promises God's made me? What would happen if I actually believed those promises? If it actually changed me such that I knew that I had a different way that I could live? Because that moment when I truly believed that God could deliver me from that too gave me freedom over smoking. It's interesting that you talk about that as, as a struggle, you know, in which you got a handle on. If, you know, God tells us that we are constantly in a battle, but it's not against the flesh and blood, it's that spiritual battle, and, and to put on the armor of God, 
And the only thing in the armor of God that he actually explains the purpose itself is the, um, is the shield of faith. And it says, so you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Yep. That's what the faith does. It actually gives us that ability That's right. to fight the evil one and know that we can so stop it. So he, he makes known the truth. And the truth actually has power to extinguish the darts of the, the evil one. Right? It's through faith. It's through faith. It's through That's faith. our embracing the truth. Right. That's what faith is. It's embracing the truth. It what is an inward condition where we have an assurance of things hoped for. A conviction of things not seen. What did you do? I mean, when you saw the tobacco sitting there, what did you do? Um... Well, okay, so for me, prayer is a continual dialogue, right? So I'm continually talking to God. So, and it happens when I'm driving down the road. Sometimes I talk out loud. People probably think I'm nuts. Um, Sometimes it happens in conversation with my wife, where we'll realize that what we're doing is we're engaging in conversation with God, and we pray together. Um, Sometimes it's in a, you know, people call it their prayer closet. Right, where it's an intentional time set aside, hey God, I'm listening, and this is what's on my heart. Um, so what happened in that moment? What happened in that moment is I came to believe the promise of God was really true. And I usually when I go through, like people, that this is the struggle, right? So how do I do this? How do I get power over sin? Well, guess what? You don't have power over sin. God has power over sin. And you can rest in him and his power. And we talked, you know, Andrew talked about the spirit of God within us. That is resting in God. When you rest in God, that power of God is effective. Right? So when I look at what's our real problem, our problem isn't that we don't have enough power. And when I look at the name and claim it, you know, word of faith movement, they have a different understanding of faith. So under that understanding of faith, our problem is not enough faith. In other words, if I'm dying of cancer um, and the the statement of that group is is if you just have enough faith, you can defeat the cancer. Your problem is you don't have enough faith. That's why you're dying of cancer. That's what they'll tell you. That isn't what God said. He didn't promise that. What he promised is that I'm safe in him. And that there is nothing that can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Right? So I look, I go back to the promises. There are promises there I won't die of cancer. No. There's a, there's a promise that if I die of cancer, I will live. Andrew quoted that this morning. John chapter 11. Christ says, even if a man die, uh, if he believes in me, he will live. And if he lives and believes in me, he will never die. Wonderful, wonderful verse. Right? So my issue is not that I, I don't have enough faith in the sense of the word of faith movement. It's not that I don't have enough power because of appropriation of grace or uh, the way that some people think the Holy Spirit works, but rather that I don't have enough truth. What happened to me in that moment was I actually believed that that was what was true, that God could indeed deliver me. It's the same thing that we enter into when we trust him for life. And that's why it says, you know, uh, 
Christ died but rose never to die again. Uh, he has power over death. It no longer enslaves him. I'm, I'm back in a different chapter. Yes, sir? Oh, yeah. I don't know how much time we have this morning. Because the clock's totally off for me. But um, when I believed that, all of a sudden, the power of that was broken. But I still had physiological stuff to wrestle through. In other words, nicotine addiction is a real addiction physiologically. It causes things to fire in my brain. And the reason they fire is because I did this to my brain. I created a channel such that any water that hits here, oh, I'm a little bit stressed. Oh, I just ate a meal. Oh, you know, all of these different things that occur when they fell on that terrain immediately went into that channel because that's what addiction does. So I needed to deal with the physiological problem in my brain, which is a whole bunch of neurotransmitters firing, right? And that was uncomfortable. But what I found is, is that um, in the physical realm, what addiction is, is it's um, a, a maladaption in your brain. You've created an artificial condition. And if you remove that condition, your brain will actually heal. So what happens is, is that uh, the less often that you go down this, the shallower and shallower and shallower that path gets. But it never goes away. That's why an addict is always an addict, right? There is, and what will happen is, is if you go back down this path, this is not only removed, but it gets deeper. Physiologically, that's what happens in the, in the brain. Because you've built these channels, the connections of neurons in your brain, and that's how addiction works. So what happens is, is when someone is physically removed from that, they go through a withdrawal. And then they'll go through about uh, three months later what they call post-acute withdrawal syndrome. And uh, what that is, is that this process is still active, even though you're not intentionally going down that path. It's still active, and it takes a long time for you to actually fill it in enough such that your body is physiologically not crying out. In other words, you normalize the, bio, the chemistry in your brain, and that period takes two years or longer. So what happens is, is uh, every seven years, all of your uh, skin cells recycle themselves, right? So you're constantly in the process of recycling your body. You need to recycle all of those toxins and certain kinds of cells hold on to them longer and you will always have a channel here but it will recycle and it will fill in and so the key is just don't do it right so that's why they'll tell you um, you can't uh, medicate an addiction because all you're doing is reshuffling the chemistry you're not allowing the chemistry to normalize you're not allowing the cells to function as God designed them to so that's why there's a particular course of action that you take in severe addiction, like a heroin addiction, right? There, there's a very strong physiological reaction. The same thing's true of nicotine. So what I had to do was I realized that that was true, and I was not going to go to my next date. So I took that tobacco and pushed it off the 
the desktop, and uh, I quit going down that aisle in the supermarket to even remind myself that there was uh, tobacco and things like that. Um, I quit, and, and this is the extreme, I quit hanging out with people that did that, um, which is really hard, you know. So people come to church and they say, well, I smoke, and you know, you're in a Baptist church, you can't smoke in a Baptist church. Well, it's true, you don't smoke in a Baptist church. So they put buck cans around the church so people that smoke can smoke, right? Well, the, the, the trick is, is that you just quit doing that. And you, for a very short period of time, get really intense in your walk with God. Saying, okay, God, you showed me this is true. Now, do it. I need you. I need your power. And so what happens is, is as the truth, uh, as you embrace the truth, your faith is grown. And ultimately, you have power. So if you're trying to do this the other direction, it doesn't work. But if you do it from this direction, it works. I didn't have any addiction that had anything to do with my physical <clears throat> matter. It was, but it was a spiritual matter because I had a tremendous, uh, uh, a, a very uh, volatile temper when I was growing up. And uh, I had a very great desire to obey God, but my temper was not doing it. And so, you know, it was this battle constantly between me trying to, um, trying to control my temper. And um, I believed that I was saved by the death of Christ. And one day I found out I was wrong in that. Romans 5.10 says, I was reconciled by the death of his son. I am saved by his life. And when I finally realized it is the life of the Lord Jesus in me and I need to just make myself available to him, all of a sudden I had power to overcome that temper, which I could never control. But when I could feel that the temperature rising, I'd immediately turn to him and say, well, Lord, you take control of this. You've got the power to do it. And, and you have promised to deliver me. Yes. And be gone. See, he can deliver you from that too. <laughs> and see, that it, it's the, the life that Jesus lives in me now that is the power of God. That's correct. That's exactly right. And what, and what the key was, if you described that, is you came to believe the truth that God revealed to you. And he revealed it to you in his word. He made a special revelation to you, and then, and I don't know how many times you read it before all of a sudden you got it, but I, I mean, maybe you got it the first time. I'm kind of dull, so it takes me a lot of times usually. Um, but then one day, I'll just be pondering something, which is why it's important to meditate on Scripture. Um, and you'll be, what does that mean? Why is David saying that? Why is um, Solomon saying this? Why did Jesus say this? Right? And you're just sitting there wrestling with it, and all of a sudden, one day, you get it. The truth. And as soon as you understand the truth, and you act on that, you felt the temperature rising, the power of God, not your power, but His power in you, was able to give you success. 
So the key is understanding what the promise is and believing it. And that's what it says here. The assurance of things hoped for. What is hoped for? We hope in the promises of God. We hope for the goodness of God in the land of the living. And then you expand upon that by, you know, you get yourself a Bible promise book that enumerates the various places in Scripture where, there's a, where there is a promise. And some of them are incredibly black and white. Like um, one of the, the areas where when I was first saved and had lots wrong in my life, I had to know that I was safe in God. That I was not going to be lost for eternity. 1 John chapter 2, verse 25. This is the promise which he himself made to us. He himself being Christ. Eternal life. God promised me that. Now is God good on his promise? I think so. Um... How do I know that he's good on his promise? Pardon? Um, I know that he's good on his promise. He showed me. He took one who was dead, whose Roman soldiers' very life depended on Christ really being dead before they took him down and turned his body over to be buried in a tomb. One who was truly dead, testified by men, and was truly raised, never to die again. God proved that he is good for his promise by doing in our, as a witness to us, in our historical framework, that which could only be, only be God and only be the fulfillment of his promise. Now, if you're a mathematician, you might say, well, okay, I've got this one truth. I can do a proof by induction, and I can show that this is good for the nth plus one promise of God. It's true for the first. It's true for the nth. It must be true for the nth plus one. Um, and what, that's the way our brain works. We say, oh, God is faithful in this. He must be faithful in that. And as we learn who he is and his character is, that builds our faith. That is the conviction of things not seen. Our faith is built. By it, the men of old gained approval. And I would say the men of new gain approval too. Not just the men of old. That this is the key to successfully living once you have appropriated the truth of Christ's death for you and his resurrection and your salvation in his life. Um, that the very life of Christ is the life that God has promised to you. Once you've um, submitted to the plan of God and made him your king, rather than you being king, at that point, you look at those promises and you have the assurance of those promises and the conviction of things not seen based upon the evidences that are built in your life. And then he goes through the evidences he says, okay, let me give you some of the evidences, just in case you're short. Um, you want some conviction of things not seen? By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. 
So what does that mean? What, what about Abel? Tell me about Abel. What do you know about Abel? And, and what, what did Cain do? Well, both of them worked. Both of them, both of them sweat, o- sweat over what they did because that was the curse, that there would be toil. Um, so both of them were working. What was the difference between Cain and Abel? Something had to die, something had to come with the sin. God set up a blood sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And uh, Cain chose the, the fruit basket, and um, Abel got it. He understood that something had to die to cover sin. He understood that uh, a sacrifice was required, a sacrifice um, of one's life. And even though he couldn't offer his own life because it wasn't possible for him to make atonement for himself, um, he could believe what God said. So he was saying, I believe God's way is right. What God said is true. What Cain said was that Cain said his way was right. And that his way was as good as God's way. Because by not bringing God the sacrifice that he required, he was saying, my sacrifice is good enough for you, God. It's not that Cain didn't make a sacrifice. If he had made no sacrifice, he wouldn't have got miffed. But he got miffed when he found out that what he thought was good was not. That his way was not God's way. What was the original sin? What, what, what happened when, uh, when Eve was deceived? This, she ate the fruit? Well, before she ate the fruit... <clears throat> The serpent told her a lie. Serpent said, For God knows in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You'll be able to declare what is good and what is evil. And what Cain did is he said the same thing that uh, Eve said when she embraced that, that what she was offering what Cain was offering was good enough. It was sufficient. He was claiming what was good. He would, had made himself the judge like God. And God said, no, it doesn't quite work like that. Um, and Abel was uh, found favor because he obeyed. And Cain did not find favor because he disobeyed. But God said, don't worry, sin is right there. What you're dealing with right there is sin. You need to master it. Right? So what did Cain do? Did he master sin? No, he did the same thing again. He went out and killed his brother. So when it talks about Abel here, it says Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Because Abel believed God. Cain did not. In doing that, 
he obtained a testimony that he was righteous, which is the, the same testimony that we read about um, that Habakkuk declared, um, here he says, but my righteous one shall live by faith. That Paul quotes when he's talking about the faith of Abraham. Right? So there's a there's a relationship between acting on what you believe is true and knowing that that's the truth of God. And how you um, relate to God in that. And that Cain was outside of that, Abel was inside of that. And though he is dead, he still speaks. We're sitting here talking about Cain and Abel today. Right? Abel testifying to us what real faith looks like. It looks like believing God. And Now, how much information did Abel have to believe God? Very little. He had um, some oral tradition passed on to him by his mother and father. And he had the evidence that all people have of God in creation. And based on that, he chose to believe that God was, was true and right and what he required of Abel. Abel couldn't deliver himself, but he could give the best that he, he had. How did Abel know that that was the right sacrifice? Because it doesn't seem like... How did he know that... That was the right sacrifice? Because it doesn't seem like Scripture... We don't see a recording of God telling him, this is what we want. Right. I do see that after he's unsatisfied, he does give him a second chance. If he do what's right, it would be okay. Right. He doesn't. Right. But, so, one of the things we learned about um, God when we were studying through Samuel is that God has the ability to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. He has the ability to understand when... Um, people truly believe and trust in him and when people don't believe and trust in him. When they are saying, well, this is good enough, I'll appease God. Um, and by doing that, they're, they're holding on to the throne in their life. Right? They're, they're holding on to control. They are not submitting in the true sense of the word. Um, so, when did God dictate the uh, the ordinance of uh, sacrifice after this I mean, after this correct a lot that's, not said that's right that's right that's right but God knew the heart of Cain he spoke with him he knew the heart of Abel he spoke with him right um, in what Abel offered Abel you know I have no idea when Abel looked around, all the things that he saw, what he determined was the best that he could give to God. But what he determined is sacrifice is required. I can't offer it. What is the best I can offer to God? Um, so when we get into the sacrificial system, we understand that um, blood, the shedding of blood is required. A life is required. But if one didn't have the ability to do that, they could get it done. Well, but but even then, when you look at the ordinance as it's played out, there were conditions where people just didn't have it. They couldn't give it. They could give their best. So what God was asking for was the best. So so how do we know that 
Cain came to did his best. I mean, after all, it says that uh, Abel was a shepherd mm -hmm. and Cain was a tiller of the soil. Right. So that, you know, in, in that respect, how do you know that Cain didn't give his best? It doesn't specify that he gave anything other than he God gave. said. Well, yes, I understand. That's how I know. That's the only way I can know is God said, that, that doesn't quite work, Cain. Your heart's not right. Right. You like to lead up to that part, we don't get any hints in the, in the narrative, right? right? And that's right. it's like it's it's so that's what it's amazing what's not told. Right? Yes. I mean, it's just well, and maybe it's because if it was told, what we would do is we would codify that. We'd say, well, by golly, I gave the the by the letter of the law that which you said you wanted, and now you're not happy, right? so that we could codify that and build a whole religious structure around that. Maybe God leaves some things um, hazy because he wants us to wrestle with him, because he's concerned about the heart. But in a still think up because he says, if you do what's right, yes. you'll be accepted. Right. He still says that. So, that's... So, so Cain had an understanding of what was right, because God put it in his heart. Paul tells us that in Romans that God puts in our heart the law, even if it's not written down. Right? So we have, that's the, the point of conscience, <clears throat> is it's our connection to uh, moral reality, which God has created. He said, this is good, this is not good, this is right, this is not right, this is true, this is not true. And he puts that in us in such a way that when we're outside of that, there is an awareness of it. And we don't know what was offered, the options that Cain had and the options that Abel had. But what we do know is God looked at the heart of these two men. He said, I see that you're giving the best. And I see that you're still holding on to that which is sin. Your heart is rebellious against me. Um, and I'm not looking, God said, your sacrifice I don't want. That's what he said. He said, I don't, I don't need your sacrifice. You think God needed the, the fruit or the, the beef or the lamb? He didn't need that. He says, it's not. It's a, a broken and contrite heart that God wants. And it's interesting that in the Mosaic Law later, I mean, it was a principle that blood had to be shed in a sin offering. However, there was an exception that if you were too poor to bring a lamb, you could bring two doves. But if you were too poor to bring the two doves, you could bring some meal. Right. No blood involved, and you could make a meal. Right. Sacrifice for sin was meal. Right. I think the key is with Cain is God was looking at his heart, and and you know, like David said, sacrifice you didn't desire. Right. Um, and he was looking at both of those brothers' hearts, and he said. Abel has the right heart condition. Cain has the wrong heart condition. And so I'm not going to accept this offering. Cain looked on the external. He said, what's wrong with my right. offering? You know, God said, something wrong with your heart. Right. You do right. You, you change your attitude, and you'll be okay. But right. then he refused. Right. And that's what happened. He refused. He, he killed his brother. But it wasn't, it wasn't the offering per se, the content of the offering, because you know, the author of Hebrews right before that uh, quoted 
Um, uh, Psalm 40 says, In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. So it isn't, it isn't the content of the offering, it's the heart behind the offering. And that's what I think this issue of faith is. Because remember, this is evidence of faith. This is what it looks like when you take belief into action. It looks like Abel. And it gives us a whole list. because um, no offering that we could bring no matter how much the desire of our heart could ever move us from a place of uh, not being in bondage to sin to being truly free from sin it required Christ to die for us and to be raised from the dead for us to truly be free and the evidence of that is is his life and that death is defeated it no longer can enslave you if it doesn't if it's defeated so that's what you see going through now as you see these examples to help us understand these nuances of faith look at my notes real quick see what I'm missing but you know all through like in the Old Testament God tells us continually to remember Yes. Remember, remember, remember. Yes. Know? And I think that's so important even for today and how God works in your life. I think it should be recorded. I think it should be remembered. Yes. I think it should be talked about. Uh, that's how we grow in, in faith in what God's doing. Right. Is, is hearing those things of how God is working in your lives. And, um, you know, he talked to the Israelites about setting up the memorial stones. Right. And so generations can come down and say, why are those here? And the stories are told. Right. You know, one thing that God has done in my life, and it, it just it gives me chills when he does it, is that when he has done something that is definitely God, somebody will, out of the blue, bring me a wine bottle. They'll bring me wine. And it's like God's affirmation. And I have these wine bottles in my room with the stories that go with it. And so when people come look, I can tell them, yes. this is what he did, this is what happened. I long sometimes to hear those stories from people. Because it builds your faith. It builds what yes. God is doing. And you're being able to see him alive in the world today through those faith. And that's, that's the, the prelude to this, is exactly that. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So the first thing is, we draw near. We realize the truth with a sincere heart. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, that's the outward expression of our hope, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. We, we are testifying to the faithfulness of God and we've experienced that in our own life and that's our confession and then the let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds and the way that that occurs is through telling the stories I uh, my house is full of stories too um, when I was uh, 
when I first become a Christian, uh, and I was I was hitchhiking, that was one of my primary ways of getting around. Was I hitchhiked, and one of the things I did in hitchhiking is I would pick up a piece of cloth uh, from the different places I was at, and the cloth became a patch on my pants, and my pants became these multicolored patches. Uh, I can't fit into the pants anymore, so it doesn't work. But uh, it, it was a story that I would tell. One would be a snag off of a barbed wire fence. One would be from a friend that housed me for a week when I was it was raining in New Jersey or whatever, right? Um, and we need to tell people. We need to encourage them. And that that's, if he goes from that into now we call it the hall of faith because these are the encouragements. These are people who actually believed and what they believed didn't even have a, uh, a view of coming true in, in reality in their lifetime, but that they knew that God was faithful and that they weren't looking for a house of their own or a land of their own, but they were looking forward to the hope of the promise of God in heaven. Right? And that's what it, it says here. It says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. He was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before being taken up, he was pleasing to God. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. So what you see is, in in these, you see um, Abel believed that what God said was right and true. Uh, Enoch uh, believed that that should be expressed in intimate fellowship. He walked with God. And that that fellowship was so sweet that God just took him. Right? And Noah acted on what God said. Right? He said, even though this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my whole life. I'm going to believe what you've told me is true and I'm going to act on it in a way that brings ridicule to me but promise of salvation for the world. The thing is, they knew when they heard God. Ah. They knew it. Can we know when we hear God today? Does God still speak? So... This is, this is another study. Can't do it today. Um, but how do you know the voice of God? And you actually have some clues here. And we'll go into that a little bit more. This is even Cain and Abel. If you go back and read the story, God spoke mm-hmm. to them. And so I, they heard God. I would say that God speaks today. And that his spirit is convicting, probably more often than not. Um, but also uh, speaking the truth, pointing us to Christ. Um, and he's also uh, assuring. He witnesses to our heart that we are his children. Right? So there's, you know, we could, we could uh, do a whole study just on that. Uh, what I would say is this. Faith starts with hope. Um, and faith then has a vision. And that what that vision is... Um, is it's the bigger story of what's going on. And that then we act on that. We act 
on the story of God that he's told us and enter into his story, that drawing near. Why don't we go ahead and close here. Um, we'll go through it again next week because we have a small group and I tend to repeat myself. So we'll, we'll pick up in chapter 11 again. And there's a lot here, like uh, the one I skipped over a minute ago. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. We'll pick up there next week. Lord, we just thank you for opportunity that we could come together and, um, Lord, to honor you uh, in this community as we celebrate 150 years. Uh, it's truly remarkable that any church would still um, have unity after 150 years, and that is the heart of men for disunity and isolation and uh, to not draw near and to not hold fast a, a confession and to not encourage others, but rather to gather for themselves. We know that that's the result of sin and what it's done to humanity, and we see the evidence of that all around us, and that we get to celebrate 150 years in this community of drawing near and holding fast a confession of who you are and what you've done and are doing and encouraging others uh, to love and good deeds. Lord, we just thank you for that, that we get to participate in that as your children. Lord, we thank you for... Um, Andrew Palau and his story, uh, that the gospel message that he's presenting this morning. Lord, we ask that, uh, that those words of yours that go out would hit the targets that you intend for them. We know that that's true. You said that it will. But Lord, we just ask that uh, that would truly uh, be the case and that we would participate in that. Um, Lord, we thank you for the time that we're going to have this afternoon and uh, joining together and communing with each other. Uh, help, help us always to be centered on you and celebrating you, uh, even in the joyous activities like the, the uh, picnic this afternoon and volleyball games, things like that. Lord, we just ask for your protection, your safety around uh, this body, around each of us as we go from here. Um, Lord, we ask for your provision and that we are helpless uh, apart from you. And uh, anything else that we might uh, hold to believe would be a lie. Um, Lord, that we depend on you for our very breath. And Lord, we just thank you that you're so faithful in, in providing for us in all things. And we thank you for that. And we ask you for that as well. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all of these things as we uh, go down this march of faith and, and really endeavor to understand what it means to walk by faith. Um, please open your word to us and encourage us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all these things in your name we pray. Amen.